Turn with me to Titus chapter 1 as we continue our look through this. We will be in Titus this week and then the next two weeks, and then the week after that we will begin the book of Joel. So again, I encourage you strongly to begin reading that. If you're not familiar with the book of Joel and the minor prophets in general, they can come across a little bit differently than the rest of the Bible, so I think a little bit of pre-reading would be, would be helpful. And obviously it's God's Word, it's good for us. And so I'm looking forward very much to going through that. But we have Titus before us, and so let us do that uh, before we go to the Word. Let's go to him in prayer and ask for help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your Word, we recognize that these letters to Paul's friends and his brothers in faith and his even his uh, disciples were very much letters to beginning churches and letters to um, help start churches. And so, Lord, we pray that this would have a real effect on our lives here as we have this church with us. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to minister through the words like these found in Titus, through your word. Lord, that you would lay our hearts open as we come to them, convict us of our sin. We are guilty many times of wanting your word to conform to our, to us rather than us to your word. And so, Lord, we pray forgiveness. We pray for help with that. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord. Give us wisdom. Give us truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As I was reading through this, it reminded me of this phrase that you often hear, and it's uh, you know something like this. Well, that's just the way things are around here. And you've heard that phrase a lot. That phrase has been used to minister to uh, to justify many atrocities over the years. I think of my time in the South when we lived in Mississippi. It wasn't long before I realized that I wasn't Southern. I grew up in southeast Missouri and thought I was a southern person, but then I realized I wasn't, not because being southern is inherently bad, but just that I wasn't that. I think growing up I wanted to be because I considered southern this uh, thing that, you know, you, you knew how to hunt and fish and kind of do your own thing and, you know, like a Hank Williams Jr. kind of song, right, you know. Um, but then I realized that something southern is actually something else, different, and that's fine, again. Some folks from the South kind of epitomize that Hank Jr. kind of mentality, but in general, the general characterization of the South is everyone is friendly and hospitable. This is kind of its calling card, right? Uh, the good old Southern charm, as it were. Uh, one of the first places you see that in literature is from 19 or 1835, where a guy by the name of Jacob Abbott said this, the, house, the hospitality of Southerners is so profuse that taverns, are but poorly supported, meaning that taverns along the road weren't needed because you could just stop at anyone's house and get the kind of hospitality that you wanted or needed. And by and large, the folks down there typify that kind of attitude. It's a good thing. However, think of all the atrocities that have been committed in the same idea, the same name of Southern hospitality. The South is where slavery was at its most wretched. And... With southern hospitality on one end of the spectrum and beaten and scared slave labor on the other end of the spectrum. Everyone is nice as long as white folks only mix with other white folks. 
Even pastors and churches would kind of join in this same mantra and they would say things like, you see, that's just the way that we do it down here. We don't mean nothing by it. It's just our kind stay with our kind, their kind stay with their kind. Were it not written on paper, I wouldn't say it. These are quotes. These are things that are actually down. And it goes on. Thankfully, most of the folks I know down there wouldn't consider it anything like that, consider that type of behavior reprehensible. But I think we get that the picture of what I'm trying to say. We've all done something like that, right? Where we've justified our sin because of something about us that can't change or won't change or we don't want to change. Maybe uh, you've probably said something like this, well, the Lord just made me an impatient person. You're just going to have to deal with it. Or I wouldn't have these feelings if they weren't right. So they must be right. We all get the idea. We are all guilty of this from time to time, from one degree or another. In our text today, Paul is addressing Titus as to how he should deal with the folks there in the island of Crete. He contrasts the role of the elder with the false teachers of the day that are there. Paul warns him about those who would use their cultural ways as a crutch to support their sin. And he instructions, instructs them on how to deal with that. Ultimately, I think we'll see that with all discipline Paul, that Paul's instructing Titus to deal with here, restoration is the goal. Just as Jesus restored us even while we were dead in our trespasses and made us alive, so when we restore others, that is the goal as well. And so when we will look at this text, we're going to look at three, or three main ideas, the character of false teachers, character of lawlessness, and then the character, finally, of redemption. So with that, let's stand together as we read from God's Word. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, through the end of the chapter. Titus 1, starting at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled 
They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Titus is a very dense book, as I think you're, you're finding out. And so we're doing really just a survey of it. And so here again, in this text, we have another list of the qualifications for the office of elder. We looked at these in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we have basically another list that is almost identical here. Why do you think Paul lists it twice and spends a pretty large section of his writings to do that? It's because they're important. That's why. There's no need to rehash each qualification here, but to simply look again at the idea of what being above reproach is, what he calls the elder to be. The elder is to be unable to be caught, is what that word means. Unable to be snagged. There's, there's nothing about him that you can snag yourself on, or there's nothing about him that you can catch. He's above reproach. The life of an elder is completely transparent because he has nothing to hide. In the same way, the congregation should expect the utmost from their elders. Also to note here, the word elders is plural. The understanding here is that uh, the word elder and overseer, you see this used interchangeably in this text and demonstrating the idea that's um, used interchangeably throughout the New Testament and meaning the same office, and that there were more than one elder in the church. There weren't just one elder appointed to each church, but there were elders appointed to the churches, and that was what he asked Titus to do. Appointing elders is akin to putting things in order, and I think that's what you see here. He says, that you that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. So the reason the Lord appointed offices for his church was for the sake of order. An octopus with no head is a really crazy sight. And so that's what I think of a church without elders. It doesn't make any sense. All the arms have no purpose. They're all kind of flailing about on their own. And everything is kind of just aimless and wild. The elders give the church direction. They function collectively as a head over the church, not to lord their authority or to abuse it by no means, but to use it for the things that are listed in this list, to give instruction, to rebuke, to teach, to discipline, to love with a gentle but firm hand. The context, I think, is important for us to understand Paul's instructions concerning the false teacher, which really are just in stark contrast to the elder. You see the elder on one hand, the idea of this false teacher on the other. And so with that, let me just say this to you all as, a, as a, the congregation. If any of you ever see, hear, or suspect behavior unbecoming of an elder in this church, let me know. If it's me, let Andy know. If it's both of us, let Don know in Paducah. If it's all three of us, we have problems. Uh, I doubt it would do that. But you understand Don't let it be. Do something about it. We beg for accountability because we need it. It's hard. As we compare the false teacher to the elder, I don't want you to get the idea that I think of myself to be the shining example of what an elder should be. By the grace of God, I'm better than I was, but I still need his help and I need yours. And so with that, let's go to the first point, the character of false teachers. Look with me at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So again, look at this in contrast to the qualifications and the description then of what the elder should be doing. The elder is considered above reproach. What do we hear about the false teachers? They're insubordinate. The elders or the false teachers are called empty talkers and deceivers. The elders are to do what? To give instruction in sound doctrine. So not empty, but something that's full. The false teacher is to be what? Silenced. The elder is to be a teacher, someone who is actively teaching and talking with the church. The false teacher teaches for shameful gain. The elder is not greedy, but hospitable, transparent. I think we get the idea. The false teacher is everything that the elder isn't. Rather than leading the church, the false teacher is upsetting the church. Notice, and then notice too, where they are from. Paul equates them with the circumcision party. I think that's important for us to get here because we understand why they might be upsetting the church by demanding that Christians must be circumcised and accusing those who aren't. And this is a problem, right? If a group of people are saying you should be doing this thing and the, the church is teaching no, you shouldn't, it creates a conflict. And the people in the middle are stuck. You know, Jesus talked about the, the thief. What do they come to do? Steal, kill, and destroy. They can't come in by the front gate, so they have to jump over the side. It's confusing to the sheep. Since circumcision isn't a requirement to be a Christian, only belief in Jesus is, this extra requirement of circumcision is wrong, right? It's dangerous to sound doctrine. It is a threat. It has to be snuffed out. And so you understand how someone who professed belief but is now being told that they must be circumcised, how this would cause confusion and distrust. If I ever stood up here and said something to you that the scriptures don't say, you would think that was odd. You would have a hard time just blowing it off. It would cause some dissension in the church. So, you know, Paul says he was upsetting many of the families these false teachers were. So I think, and I think you understand that. We have to remember that in matters like this, and I think it's important for us to understand this, when there might be a false teacher or how to snuff out or how to sense a false teacher, we have to understand that there's only one accuser of the brethren, Satan. And he would have us sow this kind of a deceit in the church constantly. He would love it if we would only ever do that, to sow deceit. So we have to watch over the church. We have to watch what we're learning. We have, and if we're doing, if we just do this for just a little bit, it can lead to just a few years from being basically paganism. And I think you've seen that through the course of church history. And so for Paul and for Titus, they were dealing with circumcision. For us, it could be something completely different. We went over this a little bit last week, but I think it bears repeating. We often see this in other people before we see it in ourselves, and so it's always easy to see someone else as a lawless person, not necessarily us as the lawless person. So I think the real trick in this 
talking about false teachers is to identify us as ourselves as someone who's much who's very capable of that, who's currently dealing with sin actively and must be working that out through prayer, through their script, reading of scripture, through help with one another. And so I think that makes sense when we go on. We talk a lot about false teachers throughout these these three books. Next, we'll look at the character of lawlessness. Notice Paul gives this second idea, and he uses a Cretan writer to bring this up. He says in verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They probably know who wrote this, a um, a prophet by the name of Epimendes, Epimendes, and not a prophet in the sense that we think of a biblical idea of a prophet, but more someone who was speaking as a as a person in that in that culture, and he was talking about and using one of the cultural sayings concerning how people viewed themselves in that culture. Basically, what is he saying? He's saying this: This is just the way that we are in Crete. You can't change us. You shouldn't try. This is just the way that we are. We're liars, we're evil beasts, we're lazy gluttons. Paul doesn't disagree with this conclusion, as you see that. And so I want to park here for just a moment, because I think this is an important thought. Uh, Cicero, who was a Roman politician, he was a writer, he said this concerning uh, this statement and the Cretans in general. He said, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery to be honorable. And so the morality and the understanding of morality is so upside down in the island of Crete that something like highway robbery is is praised, is is something that people should esteem towards, should uh, should uh, go after. Kind of crazy, right? In other words, everything is Crete, everything in Crete is upside down. Imagine taking pride in doing something like that. Kind of crazy. To be a liar, an evil beast, uh, or someone who destroys things is kind of the idea there. A lazy glutton. To take pride in that takes a special kind of person. At least that's what we would like to think, right? Someone that takes pride in their sin is different than we are. But in reality, I think we all have sins that we would like to take pride in from time to time if we're not careful. You know, for me, it was the sin of arrogance, anger. I would use the phrase, I'm just being honest, as a, uh, a way to kind of phrase that. This is how I realized that I wasn't Southern, by the way. Not because I was better than them, because I wasn't even close to being like them. I was worse than they were. I took pride in the fact that I was this real stand-up guy. I always told the truth in every situation, no matter who was around. And I was told that all the time, so it kind of made me feel like, you know what, that's my identity. I should be doing that. That's just the way that I am. You can't change me. And so the way that often played out in social situations, I just said whatever I thought of, and I interpreted that as truth, no matter who it upset. And if it upset them, well, they were wrong. In a meeting or something, someone would say something that I disagreed with. This is even in the church, which is why I'm not currently in New Albany. Uh, he said they would, uh, I would insult what they said, and they would say, or and I would say, truth again this is I'm just being honest of course and if they disputed that they were wrong and so I hid this I'm an arrogant angry 
dis, uh, disrespectful, immature little boy underneath the guise of, I'm just being honest. That's how I saw it, right? Well, how did I finally really see the truth of that? A brother rebuked me for it. He told me that I was those things. Arrogant, angry, disrespectful, acting like an immature little boy. Just as Paul tells Titus to do here. He told me those things. One of the best things that's ever happened to me. I think we all have these things in our lives, right? Sometimes we see them, we know them, we are actively fighting against them. Like the situation I just mentioned. I still want to do that from time to time. But I know that it's wrong. Sometimes we are so comfortable with our sin that we don't realize that that warm, cozy feeling that we feel around it is actually the devil's snare, which is not a good thing. If we are ever comfortable with being a liar and a destructive person and a lazy glutton, then there's a real problem. Think of, it, think of drug addiction. Would anyone say, well, there's a, a guy who's addicted to meth, a drug addict, and, well, that's just the way he is. He's comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with that. It's just the way he is. It should be okay. No, we wouldn't say that because meth is destructive. It destroys the person. It destroys their mind. It destroys their body physically. It not only destroys them, but it destroys everyone around them. It has destroyed this part of the country. It is destructive. And we would never say that is a good thing. That's just the way that we are. Never. So why do we treat sin any different? Can sin not destroy a person's body? Can also destroy your soul. Can wreck your thoughts, our behavior. It's the disease that ravages everything good in the world. Our worship, our relationships, our thought lives. It has no place in the life of a believer. But it can become an addiction. And it is an addiction. Why do you think we keep going back to it? We think it's good. It feels good. We like it. It makes us comfortable. And think of the, the South before slavery was abolished. Even during the years of segregation, all the horrible, violent racism that went on. They used it to define themselves. Along with the fact that they had charm. There are many of the old guard there that still see the sin of racism as a Southern distinction. And everyone should just leave them alone for it. Because they're comfortable. They're addicted to it. And rather than bash the South, I'm not trying to do that, brothers and sisters, understand that. Let's turn the light on our own selves and see it. Let us never get so comfortable with sin that it ensnares us and then we make it a part of our identity. So that if we don't have it, we're not ourselves. In Christ, we no longer identify with sin so we should no longer identify with sin. It's not who we are. And you can hide it under the guise of good looks or good works and smooth words, but it's going to rot the inside of your soul. It will do that. Sin has to have the light of the gospel shown upon it. And note, the light of the gospel. There is no other light that needs to be shown upon sin, not the light of my personal judgment, not the light of my condemnation. Those things are not lights. Those are darkness. If you go to a brother and sister with the tool of condemnation, 
in your hands, you're only going to drive them deeper into the cave. Go to a brother or sister with the light of the gospel, and you know what will happen to them. Their heart will be laid bare. They will see themselves for what they are. And you know what they'll do? They'll run to Jesus. Only unbelievers scurry away from the gospel. What do believers do? We feel the warmth. We feel the embrace. We feel the forgiveness. And we repent. It's what believers do. It is the character of who we are. And that brings us to the third point, the character of redemption. Look there at verse 13. Paul says, The testimony again about the Cretans is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. As I read this, I don't think, again, he's talking about Cretan unbelievers here. The unbeliever doesn't deserve a rebuke other than repent and believe. I think he's talking about Cretan believers who have embraced the sin in their lives. And he's saying, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth because to the pure all things are pure. Rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. The original word there for rebuke literally means to expose something. Rebuking isn't calling out sin for the sake of hurting an individual, but for exposing their sin, for saving the individual. Just like when anything bad is exposed, think about it. There's going to be some stinging, right? If you've ever had like a wound or something and you have to clean that wound, it's not pleasant at first, but you do that in order to get relief. You know, it made me think of when like you go get an abscess removed or something like that. I know that's disgusting to think about it, but really think about that. If you have this thing growing inside of you that's horrible, the only way to get it out is to have it just to be cut open and have it removed. That's a very unpleasant process, that exposing of the abscess. But guess what happens when you take it out? Immediate relief. Immediate relief. It's helpful. It's good. So what's the goal then of getting rid of the sin? Exposing it so that they may be sound In the faith, the goal of rebuking them is not so that everyone can see their sin, not not exposing them as a person, because the goal of this is not ridicule, but is restoration, it's redemption. He goes on in verses 14 and 15. Look there with me. Again, we read 14, devoting themselves, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. Because to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. What does the believer devote himself to? The pure things, the good things. Because how does a believer respond to seeing those things? They run to them. Believers love them things, those things. They run away from their sin and toward what is good. 
And it doesn't mean there's not going to be a struggle, because there always is. We're always struggling with sin. We read that today from the Heidelberg. It's, it's part of who we are. We do that on this, in this earth. But the rebuke is received by the believer because they see it as something that gives life. Proverbs 15.31 says this, He who listens to a life-giving rebuke is at home among the wise. It's a good thing. It's a part of our Christian life. Again, Paul finishes by showing us how the unbeliever reacts to this kind of exposure. What do they do? They see it as unpure because the light exposes their plans. Ultimately, what, are their, what is the unbeliever's plans? It's been since Genesis 3. To usurp their creator. To steal his throne. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. What did they do when their sin was exposed? They ran and hid. What does anyone, or I mean, what does one do who's in their sin and who wants to stay in their sin? They run and they hide because the God of the universe is too good, he's too true, and he's too powerful for them to withstand. And so they run and they hide to a place that they think is safe, but nowhere is safe from the judge of all things, the creator of all things. And that's not us, brothers and sisters. Make sure we understand that. So what do we do with this as, as believers? First, we receive these kinds of rebukes. That's the first thing that we do. We learn from them. We repent. We grow in our faith. These are necessary part of our, of our faith, if you ask me. Second, we are slow to offer these rebukes to other people. We don't think, okay, well, these are good for people. Well, let me go about my day and just telling everybody that they're wrong. That's not at all what we're supposed to do. Jesus' words here, what did he say? Remove the log from your own eye first before you go about the speck from your brother. Meaning that your own sin is so bad that you can't even begin to look at the sin of someone else till you deal with your own sin. How do you do that? Through repentance, understanding that you have that sin. That's how you do that. We don't, have, we don't hold any moral high ground on anybody at all, ever. Only Jesus does. And so what do we offer? Jesus, not our own morality. That's not going to save anybody. Our rebuke starts and ends with the gospel. The gospel exposes, but it also heals. Our condemnation exposes, but what does it also do? It destroys. And we are not allowed to wield that sort of power, brothers and sisters, to destroy people. That is reserved for the judgment of the Father, and he will exact that judgment. But for now, for us, we go about his work offering redemption to people. And so how do you know when it's right to offer rebuke? How do you know when, when you're dealing with someone who needs to hear that kind of truth, whose sin needs to be exposed? Ask other folks. Talk to me about it. Again, I don't pretend to be an authority on this, but I've been in ministry long enough to see many things, many situations, and I've done this. And so if you want to know how to do it really badly, I'll tell you some stories. If you want to know how to do it well, I'll tell you the way some other men have done it and have shown me how to do it. It's a good thing. It's something that we all have to do. It's never wrong to pile up a bunch of wisdom before you go about this kind of task. Remember to go about it in love and tenderness, seeking to redeem, again, not to condemn. That's not our work. The goal of all discipline in this way should be restoration and redemption. We can do no other because we've been called to only offer those things. 
Only God has the power to offer condemnation, and he does not do so ever in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. There is one accuser of the brethren. It's not us. We do not want to align ourselves with him. So quickly, in conclusion, let us remember that these kinds of things always apply first to us. We are capable of being the false teacher here. The one who would subvert the gospel and code it with our own truth. We are capable of being the Cretan. The ones who bask in our own sinfulness. And so we have to be repentant. First and foremost, repentance in the life of a believer is the fruit that is the most necessary in our lives. If there's any one thing that we should be, it is should we should be people who repent. All the other fruits of the Spirit, every single one of them, will produce much more vibrantly when we are people who repent. If we are not people who repent... All of those other fruits will be garbage hanging on the tree. We have to be people who are people of repentance, and then those other fruits will shine. Let us seek restoration and redemption in the lives of folks who are in sin. For the believer, what do we do? We offer them the gospel. Because what does the believer need? The gospel. We need Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, those who need rest. We go to them and we give them Jesus. We offer them rest for their souls. What do we give the unbeliever? What do we have to offer, brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ. Because he exposes their heart that's against their creator and shows them Jesus, the only one who can save them. So that's who we offer. Let us be people who apply the gospel first again to our own lives regularly and offer it to everyone else. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, we pray that you will help us, uh, especially to see the log in our own eye. We are so quick to judge because it takes the spotlight off of us. It helps us to hide in our own sin. And so, Lord, help us to see our sin for what it's worth. Help us to seek you out when it comes to finding redemption for that, finding rest for that, that we might pray more, that we might read from your word more so that we might be people who repent so that we might be able to be those who offer a life-giving rebuke for the sake of your church, for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, help us be people who offer you and you alone because that's all we have. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.